This is John from Polymath Producer. Welcome back to another video. Today we're doing a classic analysis of Rehab by Amy Winehouse, produced by the great Mark Ronson. Now, Mark Ronson is a legend. He's definitely one of the producers that I would love to model my career after. I mean, a producer with a brand, someone who can produce for other artists, but also release his own stuff to a wide audience. He has the best of both worlds. So it's definitely someone I wanna model after, and that's why I'm analyzing this track today. You're probably wondering, this song is like actually quite recent. Well, I'm gonna consider classic analysis anything pre-2010. So that's why I'm doing this track as a classic analysis. Spots have opened for the Polymath Producer System. So if you are an amateur who wants to go to professional, or you're a professional who wants to take it to even a, a higher level, I teach you how to read songs like a book. So how to think like the masters that you're analyzing, so that you actually start to think like that yourself intuitively behind the DAW. So if that sounds of something of interest of you, I've put together a free presentation called Read Songs Like a Book, and you can check that out at polymathproducer.com. Now, one thing to note is that music production analysis not only helps you out with production, but also helps you out with songwriting as well. And here's a clear example. This chorus has a very classic pop songwriting technique uh, involved in it. And what that is, is it's usually a, a fr like a melodic phrase is repeated twice. So this one here. They tried to make me go to rehab. I said no, no, no. So that's that's the melody line, and then it's repeated again. The same melody line, different lyrics. So it's it's essentially repeated twice, and then the third phrase is a variation. Yeah. Okay, so have a listen to this part. So that's variation. So it changes a little bit on the third phrase. And then they return back to the original melody line. Hook line. So if you listen to a lot of Bruno Mars stuff, he uses this all the time. Like two phrases that essentially repeat with different lyrics. A third phrase which has variation and usually goes higher a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time goes higher in melody in terms of pitch. And then the third phrase, which is like the same hook line, but like, or sometimes different and, and, and like a punchline. So it's the punchline of the song, which in this case is the punchline. It has the title in the, in the punchline and um, it's on the fourth phrase. If you ever write in pop choruses, that's a great technique to use. Just two phrases repeat, third phrase variation, fourth phrase punchline very uh, effective way of writing pop choruses. Let's move to the music production now. So the first thing I want to outline is the beginning secondary hook of the track, which is the keys. Sounds like it's played on a, on like a, an old school like electric piano. Sounds like a bit of a Ray Charles style. Have a listen. Very Ray Charles type. And this is playing underneath the chorus. So what that keyboard is doing is it's outlining the core harmonic rhythmic driver. Now I've talked about this in a lot of my other videos, uh, but the core harmonic rhythmic driver is essentially the main harmonic, like usually mid-level accompaniment that is driving the rhythmic part of it, especially when there's no drums. In this case, there is drums, but it's it's it flows with the bass line, essentially. That's, that's what it does. Like it has the same rhythmic motion as the bass line, 
sometimes not exactly, but a lot of the time it's it's the same thing, which I'll note uh, very soon. I'll show you how that works. But these keys are the core harmonic rhythmic driver at the start. We go to rehab, So that rhythm, like that. That's the core harmonic rhythmic driver right there. Now the cool thing about this keyboard is that it has a bit of a melody as well. So it's actually a secondary hook. So it could get stuck in your head as well, but probably not as much as the primary hook, which is in the vocals. Chord progression sounds like it's one of those old school, like 50s, 50s, 60s chord progressions. What they're doing is they're essentially pulling styles from the past and pulling them into the present which is, you know, when you reverse engineer, when you analyze tracks effectively, uh, you can create an original sound by cross-pollinating uh, genres from different eras, which is the benefit of doing music production analysis. Mark Ronson is actually a DJ. The, the benefit of being a DJ like he is, because he's, you know, I've seen his record collection, it's insane. Like he's just got stuff from like all different eras. So I think why Mark Ronson sounds so unique a lot of the time, and with the artists he works with, it's very, a very wide range of artists that he's worked with is because of the fact that he's, DJ, that he's a DJ, he's got all these influences from different eras and he has the ability to cross-pollinate different um, techniques and styles from different eras and mash them together into, the, into different genres. I mean, you'll notice that Uptown Funk, one of the biggest tracks of the 2010s is a mixture of all these different styles. Mark Ronson is essentially analyzing music or reverse engineering tracks through his DJing, and that's what makes him such an effective producer, in my opinion. That's the power of music production analysis, and that's why I teach people how to do this, because you can get into the heads of the masters you're reverse engineering. Mark Ronson, while doing this, was probably getting into the head of Ray Charles, like all these different people from, from the 50s and 60s, which is awesome. So when we get to the next section, the guitar takes over the core harmonic rhythmic driver which is very cool because I don't think we've seen that yet in an analysis where a different instrument actually takes over the core harmonic rhythmic driver. This guitar is playing the same rhythm as the piano was at the start, but it's playing different notes, I'm pretty sure. So have a listen to the rhythm of the guitar in the next section of the song. So it's different notes. But it's the same rhythm as the keys. These are the keys. So what he's done is the same core rhythm there. So what he's done is he's actually repurposed the rhythm from the original core harmonic rhythmic driver into the next section. And just to top it off, the guitar core harmonic rhythmic driver is now with the bass and they're playing the exact same thing. Have a listen. Not the exact same notes, but the exact same rhythm. But a lot of the time, the same notes. How's that for repurposing principle? These are the fundamentals, the fundamentals. If you haven't, if you haven't checked out the fundamentals, I wrote them all down and presented to you in uh, the principles video. So I'll leave that in the link below. These are the fundamentals. When you know the fundamentals on a deep level, you can do stuff like this and it makes everything so much easier. Like the fundamentals is like the framework in your mind of how production and arranging works. Have a listen to this. 
Like, so what he's doing there is he's actually stacking motives as well, which is a tr is a trick that's used in a lot of tracks. If you listen to "Stand by Me," uh, which is which is a, I think it's a '50s or '60s song. I think it's early '60s maybe. Which they would have drawn from from that era. They stack melody at the start, like that that bassline, that famous bassline of "Stand by Me." is stacked with multiple instruments. It's the guitar, the strings, they're all playing the same thing. Um, and this is exactly the same thing. The bass is playing the same as guitar in this section, and they're both playing the same rhythm as the keyboard was at the start. <laughs> so as you can see, it's repurposing rhythms and repurposing moti motives and stacking them in different instruments, layering them in ways that are you know, over, over the frequency spectrum. And you'll see that it's, it's, it's flowing with the core rhythm here. flowing with it. Core rhythm, kick and snap. So I think the the top of the dun, dun, like that, that accent there is on the second snare hit, uh, which is quite interesting. Now the guitar doesn't always do that. So that's only in this section here of the uh, post chorus, kind of like the verse. So that's playing that in that section, but in this section here, which is the pre-chorus build, I believe it's the part that starts to ramp up the rhythm. The the drum rhythm changes here, like it or not, it doesn't change, but like the drums fall back. So there's no more high-end drums. Um, there's claps in this section, and it really starts to build towards the chorus. And the guitar highlights the beginning of of the different chords. If you can if you can hear this, so it's gone. Doom. Doom. Like it's just, it's just. So, because the keys come back in and take over as the core harmonic rhythmic driver. So, if they had both of those core harmonic rhythmic drivers playing at the same time, that would clash and it probably wouldn't work. So, because the keys in this section take over again as the core harmonic rhythmic driver, the guitar then gets pushed back to just accent the starts of the chord changes. So it's just, it's just highlighting them. Accenting the first beat of the bar changes. And then it goes to chords. And it does the chords when it goes to the chorus. So that's all the guitar is really doing. It's going between taking over as the core harmonic rhythmic driver in the verses or the, the post choruses. And then in the pre-chorus and chorus, it's accenting first beats of the chord changes essentially and accenting the first bar of the core harmonic rhythmic driver which becomes the keys at that point in those different sections now the guitar isn't the only thing that does the first bar highlighters which is a very common move in a lot of productions uh, ranging from in the whole history of recorded music uh, accenting the first beat of a chord change in a bar it's it's one of the moves that's used universally in all different genres like literally all genres use this another instrument that is used to highlight the changes is the piano so here's the piano so the piano actually comes in on the section where the guitar takes over the core harmonic rhythmic driver if you can hear that it's just doing this like counter motive and it's actually a counter rhythm so it's, it's causing that healthy conflict between the core harmonic rhythmic driver, the core rhythm. It's causing healthy conflict. It's doing its own thing. So if you listen to it with 
the guitar. They're, con they're, con they're conflicting, but it's actually a healthy conflict. It sounds good. So this is the counter rhythm principle. Counter rhythm principle, so core, hum core rhythm principle, counter rhythm principle. You need both for musical interest. Another thing to note is that the piano is actually like an octave higher than the, the guitar. So it's, it's a higher frequency as well. So it's out of the way of the vocals and the guitar. It's fitting nicely. And these little bowel things that are coming in, these are little fills, melodic fills that are happening in between vocal phrases. So with the vocal phrases, Little little vocal like filled between the vocals. Another one comes here. So he's using instrument fills to um, peak interest in between the vocal phrases, uh, and just sort of like while there's no primary hook there, one just like comes in temporarily and then disappears again. When the vocal comes back in, it becomes the primary hook. Piano acts as a as a secondary hook as well. If you can hear the the little. Uh, the little motive it's playing, it's basically a secondary hook. If you can listen to this, like everything is basically a hook. Like, really think about it, everything is a hook. The guitar line's catchy, the bass line's playing basically the same thing as the guitar, which is super catchy. The piano's catchy, the, the, the electric piano at the start was catchy, the, the bells are catchy in between the vocals, the vocals themselves are catchy, the beat is catchy, boom. Like that sort of like classic sort of beat from the 50s and 60s. It's just, everything about this is catchy. Every single part. It's not just about trying to find one good thing. Like it's like, oh, I need to find one good thing. It's about pretty much making everything a hook and then choosing which ones are the foreground hooks and which ones are the secondary and hidden hooks. So which one is the primary hook? Which ones are the secondary hooks? The ones that are in the foreground a little bit, but not so much out that it takes over the primary. And which ones are the hidden hooks? I mean, the hidden hooks in this would be like the beat itself. Like that's catchy beat. Um, the other hidden hooks would be like, there's strings in here that come in later on, they're hidden hooks. I'd say the piano is probably secondary hook. The bells that come in like temporarily become the lead hook, but then they go secondary. It's just consistent. The, the kick, which outlines the core rhythm, there's slight variation in the core rhythm between each section. A cool thing to note here is that the core rhythm, because I talk about the core rhythm a lot, and the core rhythm, a lot of the time, stays consistent through the whole track. And it pretty much does in this track. Like if you, if you really think about it, the core rhythm is basically consistent through the whole track. However, in the chorus section, the kick drum changes a little bit, changes pace a little bit, which means that the core rhythm, it doesn't have to stay the same through the whole track. Although all the instruments gravitate around the core rhythm at any given time, the actual core rhythm itself can change with sections. That's a very, that's a very key thing to note. Say you're doing like a verse and the core rhythm is one thing and everything's gravitating around that core rhythm. But then in the chorus, you want to change the core rhythm to something different to maybe spike interest or just change it up a little bit. You can do that and it is effective. I mean, it's done in this track. There's remnants of the original core rhythm there. The clap takes over that, that snare hit, the boom, that, that snare hit, the clap takes over that but it's a slight variation and the kick changes slightly as well. And the bass is just sustained in the chorus. Bass is sustained in this section. 
and the claps are doing something slightly different to what the snare was doing, but pretty much the same thing. So the core rhythm, it can change between sections depending on what you want to go for, but the same rule applies, the same principle applies in the fact that when the core rhythm's present at any given time, most of the instruments usually gravitate around that naturally. The drums in this track are interesting because of the amount of fills that are used. I mean, I, I don't think I've heard a track that's used this many fills and this many variations on fills before. Like there's fills literally all the time. Like you just heard two fills between two vocal phrases. So she does one vocal phrase, there's a fill. Another vocal phrase, there's a fill. Another fill between the vocal phrase. Ready? And there's always a bigger fill just before a section change. And this happens through the whole track. So there'll be a fill between vocal phrases. There'll be an even bigger fill between sections. I guess the thing to, the principle to understand here is that drum fills can be used in between vocal phrases to spike interest and almost like a hook in itself. In the post-chorus, he uses more melodic fills in between verse phrases. But in that section, he was using more of a percussion fill in between vocal phrases, which has just as good of, as an effect if you do it properly. And we'll we'll see how that actually works in, um, in the modern track that I'm analyzing this week as well. It, it spans into different tracks as well. So as you can see, this section, the drums are more consistent. There's not many fills. And that's because he's got the fills melodically with the bells in between the vocal phrases. So it's it, that's it's very interesting to note that. Like he's he's moving between percussive fills and melodic fills, which is awesome. Like it's it, it it sparks that interest over a longer period of time. The other thing I want to say about the drums is that the more dancey section technically is the post-chorus, like the verse. It's got the hi-hats, it's got the snare hit. This one here, the one with the more consistent rhythm. This is like the more, you know, some more dancey sort of section. And the chorus, this is more like soul style. The other one was more like, I guess like, R&B, Motown style. So that, that contrast there, it's all about contrast. Now with the background vocals, have a, have a listen to where they've actually used them. Accentuating particular words, particular phrases. So Amy's singing the, the line and then, and then when no, no, no happens, they have doubles that are panned out that are accentuating that line. Again, happens again. Now, vocal pads, harmonized vocal pads, R on an R. This is very old school, like 50s, 60s stuff that they're using here. So they say they're grabbing techniques from other eras, bringing them into the modern era. Very old school. You'll hear that in a, in a, in a 60s song. It sounds like Smokey Robinson sort of style. Then they double that again. And that's pretty much the only background vocals they have for the entire track. This brings me to the next thing, which is the, the brass and the strings. Because the vocal, background vocals, 
act as a pad, a vocal pad, and that pad sings the exact same thing as the brass pad that happens later on. Okay, this is it, the brass pad, right here. Brass pad, same thing basically as the vocals pads, which is very cool. Repurposing principle in play. So the brass plays the pad underneath the vocals as well, plays the same thing. The other thing the brass does is what I like to call the key three when it comes to brass. And I noticed this in like a lot of the tracks that I've analyzed with the brass sections, especially from the 1960s, 70s, things like that, is that the brass tend to do one of three things at any given time. Number one, they do sustained. Uh, so sustained pad-like brass. And a lot of the time as well, the brass does the pad and it, and it Zandos up. It crescendos up. So it starts like a bit quiet and then it gets louder and louder. And it's, an, it's a stylistic move that brass can do. That's one thing that, that I've, I've noticed they do, pads. The second thing that brass usually does of the key three is motives. So they do motifs, like their own little like uh, hook, hook lines, melodic hook lines um, that play with the arrangement, either as a fill or as a, a secondary hook to the vocal while it's playing. The third key thing that brass usually does is staccato hits. And what staccato hits usually are there for is for that intensity. So energetic intensity and to highlight certain things. So you'll notice that in this track, the key three is present in all three. Let's have a listen to that. So this particular section is the staccato of the key three. So staccato playing. As you can notice, it's highlighting certain rhythmic aspects of the, of the rhythm, um, but it's doing it in a harmonic way. So the brass is laid, it's, har it's harmonically laid with counterpoint and it's highlighting the rhythm. The other thing to note here, just real quickly, is that there's colon response. There's a little saxton that's going like that, col, response, response. And they're in different frequency ranges as well. So it's like this this little conversation that's happening in the brass section while the while in the background, like while everything else is happening. It's very cool. Okay, next up in the key three, sustained brass, Swartzando. Gets louder and louder as it's sustained. So it's 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 sustained but Swartzando up. It builds intensity, it's a stylistic move. So that's number two of the key three. Now we're up to number three of the key three of brass, which is motive. Have a listen to this, this is in the chorus. See, little motives. Motive, sustained. So this is actually two parts of the key three combined together as one in the drop, which is motive into sustain intensity and then back motive back down again. As you can hear as well, the motive goes up. Dun, dun, dun. So, so it's like a call and then response. So all these fundamentals are coming into play here. You've got call and response, you've got repurposing, you've got the key three in brass. And the key three not only works with brass, but it works with all other instruments as well. 
strings do the same thing. Sa same principle applies. Um, strings, like the staccato, happens on like intense moments. Usually strings, the rather than sforzando, which it, it can do, it does tremolo. So it tremolos when it wants that in, that held, sustained presence in a pad-like form, but for intensity, and that happens in this track, uh, which I'll show you in a second with the strings. Same principle applies with the key three. Okay, so we'll, we'll move on to the strings now because the brass pretty much does that same thing through the whole track. It does the key three. I suppose the last thing that I want to talk about with the brass is that he's used something that we talked about the, the other week with um, with Ian Kirkpatrick, where he repurposes lines from earlier and then combines them together into the one thing in the finale. What I mean by that is that, say you've got one instrument playing one thing in say the verse, and then you've got that instrument playing something different in the chorus, and then at the end for the finale, you combine both parts together for intensity. That's exactly what Mark Ronson has done here in the finale. He's actually grabbed the verse, like post-chorus rhythm, uh, post-chorus brass. So it's the same rhythm, but then the very finale part, it's got the snare. And the brass. See that, like repurposing rhythms from, from other sections that you've already done into the finale, it's, it's just genius moves. Okay, let's go to the strings. So the strings are actually reserved for the second verse or the second post-chorus. And out of the key three, they're doing sustained slash motive. On a single line it seems, but it's multiple strings doing it. For texture, intensity. Now this is what I was talking about before. Tremolo sustained creates more intensity. It's a stylistic move. So this is the pre, this is for the pre-build. And they've got a tremolo for that, that intensity. Can you hear that? This is the final build. Tremolo for the intensity. This is pretty cool. So he's got little plucks, little uh, string plucks for the finale here. Pizzicato, another stylistic string move. So pizzicato, is, it's, it's highlighting certain rhythms harmonically. But then he goes high, and that was that he did, he did a Svorzando sustained, but very high for the last finale, like intense part, just to like really hit it home. Um, so yeah, guys, seriously, this song, this arrangement was just awesome. Uh, I had a great time analyzing this one. So I hope you like this arrangement. Again, if you want to check out how to read songs like a book, just like I'm doing and uh, really start to think like a master yourself, I'll leave the link below, uh, polymathproducer.com. But until next time, I'll see you then.